This morning we are continuing our examination, our answer to the question, what does it mean to be a church member? As we think about, uh, not just for the, of course this is a great New Year's sermon because we're sort of resetting and recalibrating, but of course this is an idea that is applicable for uh, all of the year, right? This is not just a New Year's idea. Maybe you've heard it said, maybe you've said it yourself, give me Jesus but not the church. Uh, the idea that we are okay with Jesus as an individual, but organized religion, not so much, right? This is, a, I think, a common idea in certain sectors of the population, maybe certain places. I don't know if it's more or less than it was in times past. It's hard to say, but it is definitely an idea that many people have. And I, I understand the sentiment, the motivation behind it, because people are imperfect, right? We are pale imitations of the real thing. The real thing is Jesus, as we think about him trying to emulate him, trying to be like him. We are his church and, and we fail, right? We do, we understand. People are where it gets messy. Jesus, he's great. Oh man, he's so great. But then his people, eh, not so much. Christians will let you down. Right? You've been let down. I guarantee you, you've been let down by people in this room. I say that. If you just moved here, maybe not. Maybe you haven't been here long enough. But if you've been here long enough, people in this room will let you down. And it's worse, right, than just some random person or somebody at work or some other kind of person who's not a Christian. It's worse because we're the ones who should know better, right? We're the ones who should be better than that. But we let each other down. And sometimes it's tempting because of the flaws of people, to wash our hands of the imperfection of people in their groups, to just go back to the source, right? We just want to go back to Jesus. We just want to have a relationship with him. And I don't want to deal with people because people are idiots and people are dumb. And I hate people, right? Not, not that I'm not saying that's true, but that's the temptation that we have, right? But this temptation can, not always, but can come from the darker parts of human nature, the more selfish parts of human nature. Now, I hope none of us are, are doing what Cain and Abel, their struggle. I hope none of us are emulating Cain in the fact that we murdered somebody. Maybe you have, maybe you haven't, hopefully not. But even if you're not murdering, you can have the same attitude as Cain, right? Genesis 4, 8, 9, Cain spoke to his Abel, his brother. When they were in the field, he rose up and killed him. He was jealous. He was angry. He was bitter. And the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I don't know. I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Of course, God knows, right? He knows. But this idea, I'm not responsible for you. Now, of course, Cain, he's going at this from a different way, right? He's very much committed a, a, a sin. And yet, maybe we haven't committed the same sin, same sin as Cain, but we do have a similar idea, right? When we are selfish and sinful and we want to do our own thing, I don't want to be around other people because I don't want to deal with you guys making me not do what I want to do. I don't want to deal with you guys having to keep me accountable. I don't want to have to deal with, and I also don't want to have to put up with your nonsense. Ultimately, our nature, our culture conspire to give us a false idea about this idea of rugged individualism, right? We all go our own way, we all make our own way, and we're all just responsible for ourselves. On the one hand, nobody likes being beholden to others. I don't like being beholden to others. No, neither, you know, maybe you have a good boss, but there's times when your boss chafes, right? Because they're making you do stuff you don't want to do. Maybe it's parents and kids. Oh man, I know my kids, they chafe 
sometimes because of my restrictions. I don't like being beholden to the others and nobody likes it being beholden to me. On the other hand, being responsible for other people, that's a huge task. That's such a monumental thing. I don't want to be responsible for you because maybe you don't know what you're doing and maybe you're not doing what you're supposed to do and I don't want to be responsible for that. But here's the point. Jesus never presented an option to be a Christian without being in his church. That is not an option that is presented to us. Because those who were saved at the very beginning, what does it say? They were added to the Lord. He was adding to their number those who were being saved, the number of the believers. If the, we want to be in the body of Christ, right? He is the head of the body. I want to be in his body. What does that mean? I'm going to have to be in his body with all the other people in his body. There's not like a special separate body that's just me. I have to be with all the rest of you yahoos. And you have to be with me. <laughs> Sorry for you about that. Yes, ultimately. There's an interesting tension in this. It's true that we bear consequences for our own actions. No one can save you and you're not going to save anyone else. This is, the, this is the tension at the heart of this idea. This duality. That yes, I'm responsible for you. You're responsible for me. But ultimately at the end of the day... What does Galatians say? We read it already. Galatians 6, 1 through 5. Brother, if anyone's caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing. Uh, what's the, the implied thing behind that? None of us are anything. We're all nothing compared to God. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one, let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. So which is it, Paul? Should we bear one another's burdens or will we bear our own load? Which one is it, guys? He says, in the one hand, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. But that he concludes with, each will bear his own load. He says, keep watch on yourself, right? I'm, I'm responsible for me. And yet the idea, if I am catching others in a transgression, what does he say? If anyone's caught in a transgression, there's an implication there that I'm watching others too. Because I'm going to see if you're in a transgression, so who exactly is it that I should restore in a spirit of gentleness? Who is that? Surely those in the world, I'm catching them in a transgression all the time. Because they don't love God. They don't claim to love him or do what he wants. I'm going to see that worldly people, they're doing all sorts of bad stuff. Am I supposed to restore them in a spirit of gentleness? What does that mean? So when we think about church membership, in many ways, this is a matter of practicality how should we accomplish our responsibility toward one another? And secondly, who exactly does this responsibility involve? The importance of accountability is emphasized numerous times in the New Testament, both by Jesus and the apostles. There is a need in human groups of all kinds, not just the church, but human groups of all times. As we endeavor to do things, there is a need for accountability. Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, this is of course Jesus speaking. If your brother sins against you, go to him and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, great, you've gained your brother. I added great there. You've gained your brother. That's the implication, right? Yes, that's good. It happened and that's the way it was supposed to happen. Hooray. But if he does not listen, well, just let it go because he's just responsible for himself and you're just responsible for yourself. Is that, that's what he says there, right? 
That's what maybe we want it to say, but there's more to it, right? If he doesn't listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Now, this is one of those interesting words, uh, one interesting places where this word is used, the word church here. The church does not exist in the way that we think about it in Matthew 18. This is before the crucifixion, before the resurrection, before the day of Pentecost. What is he saying here? Tell it to the assembly, the congregation. In that, in that context, in the original context, would have been the congregation of the Israelites, the synagogue, the, uh, maybe in the temple, but wherever they were, right? The, the assembly, the gathered people, because you can see the escalation, right? One on one, one or two others. The escalation is then what? More people. Tell it to the group. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. We'll come up with what that means in just a minute. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 5, continuing the idea of this person who is committing the sin. And, and they were having a bad attitude about it in the first two verses. For though I am absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgments on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled, here's that word again, assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus. And my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Now, what does that mean? Oh, that's intense. What is that? Well, uh, what does that exactly entail? It goes back to what he said previously. Let him be to you a Gentile and a tax collector. He says it to the Thessalonians this way, 2 Thessalonians 3, 6. We command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. In the same chapter, in verse 13. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. It's all the same thing. What is the, the principle here that we're, we're reading as we read these verses? We are responsible for one another. And we are accountable to one another. Our job as a group of people is to make sure that we all collectively and individually are doing what Jesus wants. Here, Jesus says, if he won't listen to correction, treat him like a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, in our context as a Gentile, well, that's all of us. We're all, I, I shouldn't say that. Maybe there's somebody in here of the Jewish lineage. I suspect that most of us are Gentiles. Gentile is just the opposite of Jew, right? And that makes sense in Matthew 18 in the original context. And so Paul clarifies it more, right? It's not just about the idea of Gentile or tax collector, but what? He's not supposed to be in the group anymore. Ooh, did it again, that thing. Uh, that you keep away from him, that you have nothing to do with him. You're holding the person accountable. So, come back to Galatians 6. Who exactly is it that I should restore? It's interesting, he says, brothers, in all, most of these texts here, right? If you have a brother, one who is in the group, one who belongs to the body, one who is signed up to be held accountable to Jesus. When he says, treat him like a, ta a Gentile and a ta tax collector, 
Consider him not a part of the group anymore. Now, he makes it clear in chapter 5 as we continue, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, or the swindlers, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. There's a distinction that he's drawing between what? Those who are in the group and those who are out of the group. And he said this in 1 Corinthians 14, if anyone who is in the position of outsider who's in your assembly... There's a difference between the accountability that we have to other Christians and the responsibility that we have for other Christians and the way that we consider the world. I don't mean not associate with people of this world. because Why? Because we have to evangelize. We have to convert. We have to teach. We have to convict. But presumably the one who's in the body, the brother or sister, they've already been convicted. They know the truth. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, that is, those who are Christians, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or idolater, or reviler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. What have I to do with judging outsiders? What's the implied answer? Nothing. I got nothing to do with judging outsiders. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Which is what he said to the Thessalonians, right? You see somebody who doesn't want to obey what's in this letter? Have nothing to do with that person. Purge him from among you. God expects a level of accountability in the church that isn't and cannot be present in our relationships with the world. You are held to a higher standard. Held to that standard by who? By the rest of us. You are responsible for me. And I am responsible for you. To keep us from straying from the path. He makes this distinction even clearer in a different way as we keep going in chapter 6, verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against one another, does he dare? Does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous before, instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world if the world is to be judged by you? Are you incompetent to try trivial cases? What's trivial? Matters of this life. Do you not know that we are to judge angels much more than matters pertaining to this life? If you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? What is he talking about here? He's talking about those of us together suing one another. I say this to your shame. Notice the strong language. Does he dare? How dare you go to law before unbelievers? This is to your shame. Can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? Again, notice the in-group language here. But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. The distinction being drawn. Those in the group and those out of the group. And we should not be airing our grievances within the church. We should not be airing those before the world. Now, maybe you're not going into lawsuits. I hope not, because that's what this verse is specifically talking about. But let me suggest to you that the most immediate application of this verse is Facebook. Or Twitter. Or Instagram. Or wherever you use social media. That when we air the disputes that we have in a way that damages the reputation of the church, keep it in-house, in the household of God. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. A defeat in what way? Satan is winning! Because we cannot keep it 
in the family of God. Being a church member, then we're answering the question, what does it mean to be a church member? Being a church member means committing to hold your fellow Christians accountable and to be held accountable. That when you commit to Christ and his people, there is an acknowledgement, not necessarily explicit, though we have in the past made it explicit, but implicit in the commitment, that you agree that others can make sure you are doing what is right. And you agree that you're not just going to let other people do their own business without any repercussion, that you will do to the best of your ability, you will help other Christians do what is right. Because the Christian endeavor is not a solo endeavor. Of course, one group more than any other bears this heavy burden. And it is a burden, let's be clear. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You can apply that in a lot of ways. It could be physical ailments or difficulties. But I would suggest to you in the context of Galatians 6, if any of you is caught in a trespass, restore such a one. Bear one another's burdens. It's bear one another's spiritual burdens. The difficulties that we have in being righteous. And there is a burden in that, right? Why? Because we're all so imperfect. It goes back to our original point. We're all so imperfect. Bearing my burdens, guys, oh man, it must break your backs. Because I'm not perfect. I have difficulties and flaws and sins just like everyone else, just like we all do. And the one group that bears this more than any other is, of course, who? Acts 20, verse 28 and 31, through 31. This is Paul speaking to the Ephesian elders, and he gathers them together in Acts 20. He gathers the elders in Ephesus and says to them, I'm not going to see you again. This is it. So here's what I want to tell you. Pay careful attention to yourselves, that is, to the Ephesian elders, and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. The word overseer, one of the three words, elders, overseers. Some translations have bishops, right? Some have uh, shepherds for a different word there, right? But this idea that you're caring for the flock, you are responsible for them. To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, that is, members of the church, will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Be alert. Why? Because you're responsible for making sure that these people that have risen within the church, they don't spread the thing. And that's why he says in 1 Corinthians 5, right? Purge the evil person from among you. Have nothing to do with that person, he says in Thessalonians. Hebrews says it this way in speaking of the rest of us. Obey your leaders. And submit to them, for they are keeping watch over our souls. As those, and this is the heavy burden, as those who will give an account. Have you ever thought about that? I think Jim and Stephen Don are here, all of them. They're going to give an account for you, for me. And so the instruction from the Hebrew writers, what? Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Not to the elders, to you, to, to the members here. That if we are the kind of church members 
who make the job of the leadership hard, then we have no advantage. It is worse for us. Accountability in the church. Now, we have a particular way that we do the membership process. It's not delineated in Scripture, right? But it's very similar to the fact we meet at, what do we meet at? Nine and ten? Why nine and ten? Could be two, could be three, could be 1130. Why do we meet then? Well, this is just when we do it. The membership process doesn't have to be the way that we do it, but it is a way of facilitating a particular idea, a particular commandment. Who am I responsible for? And who is responsible for me? So we do it this way. It doesn't, again, it doesn't have to be the way that we do it. Maybe those of you who have placed membership recently, you understand, right? You meet with the elders. You have a little chat about things. And, you, you know, there's a, a public statement of commitment. It doesn't have to be that way. But what we're doing when we do that is facilitating this idea. That they're going to give an account. And they need to know who they're accountable for. And we need to know What? Who are we accountable for? If I'm going to bear one another's burdens, if I'm going to keep watch, not just as the elders are doing that, we understand the elders do that most of all, but the rest of these verses, right? I wrote to all of you not to associate with the sexually immoral. Uh, when he thinks about anyone, brothers in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you keep away from a brother who's walking in idleness. That's just not, not to see elders. If, you, if any of you catch someone in a transgression, there's an element of responsibility in that for all of us. And so accountability is not a pleasant idea because I don't want to be beholden to anybody. I understand this, right? I'm going to bear my own load. I'm going to be responsible for my own sin. So why do I need to bother with other imperfect, conflicted people? Why do I need to bother with that? Because Jesus expected it. Because Jesus expected us to keep each other on track. And quite frankly, because I need it. Why do I bother with other imperfect people? Because I need you. And you need me. And we need each other. This leaves us with the practical questions, right? Who, how, when, and where. One of the things that we do, the, the process of membership that we have, of idea of placing membership, is a, a way of addressing these practical questions. There's others we'll talk about as we go through this series. And at times, this may chafe against our individualism. Why do I have to be a member of this church? Why do I have to commit? Why do I have to publicly acknowledge that I'm committing to this group? Why do I have to do that? There's a good reason. A reason that is a frightening reason. 1 Peter 5, 8, and 9. We'll end with this verse. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Be watchful of who? Well, we could go in a number of different ways with that. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Who's he seeking to devour? Me and you. Seeking to devour us, the lion prowling in the dark. Why do I need you? I need you because the devil wants to eat me. Not physically, right? We understand that. It eats my soul, though. He wants me to die, ultimately. He wants me to be separated from God. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the whole world. We are in this together. I appreciated what Bob said about the idea of connection in communion. We are connected not just with the Christians of ancient times, but Christians who are, at this moment, 
or throughout today, meeting and gathering. And they're all facing the same problem. What is the problem? The lion, the roaring lion, the prowling lion. Wherever Christians are meeting today, they're gathering to support and encourage and, yes, to keep one another accountable so that the devil will not eat us. And so we ask the question, are you ready to be a member? We've understood, right? We've talked about over the last few weeks the difference between the Lord saving us and being a part of the Lord's congregation in the universal sense and then being a part of the Lord's congregation in the local sense. The idea of the local church is really centered on this idea of accountability. Because I'm not accountable for a Christian in Des Moines, Iowa, right? I'm not accountable for that because I don't know that person. I'm accountable for you, the people that I know, the people in my life. Even though the Christian in Des Moines is just as much part of the body, he's got his own people that are keeping him accountable, keeping him on the right path. And so if you're here today, we ask two questions. One, are you a member of the universal church? Have you been united with Christ in baptism? Have you been uh, in the situation where your sins are forgiven? But the second question, do you want to commit to this group? Knowing that as you do so, yes, it might be uncomfortable. Because I'm imperfect. Even our elders, they're imperfect. But we're going to strive together to make sure that we're all doing what God wants.